Welcome to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, where our editors share their thoughts on works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Joshua McWhorter. In the immediate wake of the protests that erupted across the U.S. following the murder of George Floyd, the Philadelphia Inquirer published an article by architecture critic Inga Saffron under the title, Buildings Matter Too. Now, the article's grotesque headline quickly became the subject of intense backlash, and a top editor responsible for printing it actually resigned from the Inquirer. But largely ignored amidst this controversy was Saffron's actual argument, which can be summed up by the piece's new, softened title, and I quote, damaging buildings disproportionately hurts the people protesters are trying to uplift. This controversy aside, I recently sat down with two of my fellow failed architecture editors, Kevin Rogan from New York City and Bassem Saab from Beirut, to hear their thoughts about this claim and how discourse around looting and the destruction of buildings and property has generally played out across the U.S. and in Lebanon in recent months. This article came out with the title Buildings Matter 2. There was a huge furor and uproar, and I think very justly so. Um, you know, because that's a shit title. Because like, it seems like the editor slapped the title onto the... <laughs> right. I don't think um, Inga Saffron, the Philadelphia Inquirer's architecture critic, would have given it that title. Yeah. But I think that there is still a sort of like insidiously chauvinistic thing with some core to the piece. And then I, I, you know, I couldn't help but notice like this sort of endless appeal to like practicality, to rationality, yeah. to let's be civil, to let's not batter our, our beautiful city and so on and so forth. That was just like, you know, obviously making a moralistic yeah. judgment um, without, you know, trying to explicitly say so like the first title kind of did. It sounds to me, and like, you know, I'm very curious to see how this is modulated in your experience in Beirut. But when there's this sort of rhetorical focus on social ownership, so like, you know, we have to protect our city, like we have to coexist within our city, it is just so, I mean, it's one of those things where like you kind of have to step back for a second and just be like, wow, like, you know, even though these are people that I personally disagree with, I'm sure you disagree with that sort of sentiment, just like you have to kind of marvel at the fact that they've taken something like that could potentially be real power, like the right to the city or something like that. Or the commons. And turn it, or, right. And turn it yeah. into this vague idea of social ownership where it's like, that's our, you know, like that's your Wendy's. How dare you burn it down? Yeah, it becomes more shit baby. like that. Right. And it's like, who a- actually owns the fucking Wendy's? Like, that's not, that's not our Wendy's. <laughs> that's not anybody's Wendy's yeah. except for whatever international food conglomerate owns that particular Wendy's franchise. Like, you know, the slippage there is like, it's just so masterfully done and so ideologically <laughs> and rhetorically like perfect. Like, <laughs> it's one of those things you kind of want to be like, wow. Ironically, it even starts to become like even the same argument that's used in Beirut, which is like, actually the city center is for the blacks and the whites and it's like kind of for coexistence which is eerily similar to, to Lebanon even though like nothing can be extrapolated from Lebanon and it's really singular kind of but like there's always this discourse of like coexistence between Muslims and Christians it's like we need to coexist in the city center like we shouldn't trash it and that always obscures like class and different like different being subjected in different degrees to state violence. In the first-hand experience I'm speaking uh, from comes from late last year in Beirut when we 
basically the protests started on October 17 when there was the like the last kind of the last straw was this new tax on WhatsApp calls and it kind of triggered this major um, like that's when the popular upper like the uprising began but and those the for the and it was the first two days we had a lot of looting and rioting and then it kind of was like packaged into this more civilized and peaceful movement and kind of like the actors who had been involved at the beginning who were a bit who were who caused the uh, damage to private property were kind of cast as sectarian supporters who 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 somehow had shown up in the uprising but now weren't there anymore or it was just kind of like a package as it was just like the spontaneous start of it but now we've we've made it peaceful and you would see that uh rhetoric also deployed by people on the ground like as soon as a as a fight breaks out or anything people would start yelling like uh like we're a peaceful movement like this shouldn't happen it would be just kind of like like it's it becomes the cop in your head like you're an uprising but you're also police at the same time um and yeah, and in Beirut, there's there's kind of really like there's no room whatsoever to construct this argument about um, about destroying a neighborhood that's the in, that's the, that supports the livelihood of the protesters because the main the streets that got the most damage were in the heart of the of Solidar, which is this private public joint stock company that reconstructed the center of Beirut after the civil war. And there was like in making in in the initiation of that company, there was a lot of dispossession of uh, small business owners, and it was just like there was a lot of repossession of property and stores that was then um, agglomerated into this larger, uh, like dissolved and made into this joint stock company. So no one is under any impression that uh, uh, that Solidar or downtown supports the livelihood of any kind of um, slightly impoverished population or that half of the population can even afford to, to go there. But still, there's often, again, this rhetoric of the downtown being like the center for um, this beacon of coexistence or this like this whatever glamour we have left in the country that we need to hold on to as part of, a, yeah, just like as part of a nation building just like an image of a, of a nation. But yeah, I feel like though the, the looting in Beirut was really condemned, but it did not occupy as much time in the media as the looting and rioting in the US now did. In the article we're referencing, like the one from, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, as someone who's writing that, that polemical piece of writing, or you're making this claim that it is not in the interests of the protesters to destroy these buildings because they won't be reconstructed. It's kind of like you need to just think of who you're pointing at and who you're directing this rhetoric to. Like, and like as comedians are told to punch up, not punch down, like this is just like on a very basic level, like who are you addressing your discourse to? Are you addressing it to future protesters in a way where like, you make this claim and you make this call to nonviolence. And then if it continues to happen, there's been like kind of a notice given and now it becomes like even more um, criminalized or what is, and that's why I feel like instead of, instead of condemning the protesters because these, uh, these, 
streets may not be rebuilt, why not just direct it at the stakeholders that have that um, power to rebuild after a kind of uprising, after some kind of damage that happens in an uprising, whether it's insured, whether it's not insured, whether it's big business or small business or in the city center that um, is not in any way affecting the livelihood of the most impoverished or whether it is in a more uh, community that directly is, uh, is, sustains the, the, the people there. Yeah, I just feel like there's a responsibility in making that kind of statement. And then this is beyond the headline, the, the scandalous headline that was slapped onto the article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I, I think you're obviously 100% correct. And this is a point that Safran tries to make in the article. I'm just going to read this quick little blurb. An incredible 56 years have passed since the Columbia Avenue riots swept through North Philadelphia, and yet those former shopping streets are graveyards of abandoned buildings. Residents still can't get a supermarket to take a chance on their neighborhood, which is just, you know, it's mind-boggling because yeah. it's trying to plug in, you know, the large, like, so the large-scale collapse of social programs over half a century <laughs> and yeah. turn it into this, like, well, you know, like, if, you know, a while ago, they, they did destroy those buildings. And, you know, who would want to come back if they did it once? It's like, okay, well, we rebuild in floodplains. Like, you know, the entire Midwestern tornado alley where I'm from is a testament to the continued stupidity of, like, private capital development and just building over and over when you know there's a very high likelihood it's going to be destroyed. That's not the problem here. The problem is that, you know, social reproduction cannot be allowed to happen in these places. And therefore, that is withheld. Um, and so, like, trying to conflate those things is just, is just really, I, again, kind of like one of these things where you got to be like, my God, how did, how did they do this? Like, just yeah, and like, blows my mind. And, like, if it is true that there wasn't any kind of proper reconstruction in that first wave, like in Columbia Avenue, then now you're going to use it against the protesters? Like, how, like how are you not further propagating the logic of that by um yeah like moving the onus of responsibility and reifying it as being on like the shoulders of the protesters one thing that Gideon says that's so brilliant is that he says that you can't deny the beauty of um these the, the looters stealing refrigerators when they might not even have electricity in, in their own houses and that was that for me also resonates with when we were discussing the lootings in, in Beirut last year, um, what a lot of the, like one funny moment was that um, a lot of the looters stole the cell phone shop. So they stole like a lot of recharge cards for their lines. And that and actually the protests, the, the whole uprising had started when there was like a new fee imposed on WhatsApp, um, a proposed fee imposed on WhatsApp texts, which is actually like a, third-party application and i don't i don't even know if <laughs> if elsewhere in the world there are taxes imposed by the government on specific apps but that was a plan that was being uh, pushed forth and yeah and like Gita war in this text the decline and fall of the spectacle kind of like says that looting sort of short circuits um the chain of uh, like just like the chain of production and it short circuits that last link in the chain between the consumer and the commodity. Um, and he was kind of rising to the occasion of, of those riots. He was trying to defend the black population of Los Angeles that participated in the Watts riots 
against basically all these different factions uh, of the political spectrum, like against the police uh, and the bootlicking rhetoric, against the NAACP, which was, has a much more of a reformist perspective, and against like the what he calls, I think, the vacuous international left, which is kind of like primarily a white um, left. And he just wants to like basically defend the logic of the of this of the rioting crowd or the rioting what what would be referred to as the mob. Yeah, I think that the language of the like the mob um, is kind of a, a double-edged sword because on one hand, you know, if you've been to an action, like you know there is sort of a like crowd mentality that can definitely take over at things where people do kind of decide something all at once and, you know, move together, develop like similar uh, objectives and so on and so forth. It can be really kind of, you know, exciting and bizarre to get caught up in, especially if you're not used to it. But on the other hand, the like treatment and the sort of, you know, characterization of people is this like vast sort of idiotic bumbling, like mob thing that's lashing out and like destroying parts of themselves and like, wounding themselves like an animal in a trap like on the point of like you know you, this rhetoric comes up a lot when it, especially i think with like the more recent wave of like tearing down statues where it's just like sort of conservative commentators and you know morons saying stuff about like oh the the mob has struck again like the mob is like you know they're destroying their history like the mob is going to come for all these works of great beauty and like the mob hates culture and intellect and art and civilization. And I, I think it, you know, then that obviously has a sort of reflexive thing where it says, oh, the, that means the mob is sort of violent inherently. The mob can't do anything that isn't violent. Um, and I, I, I think that's just something that we have to take extreme care to push back on. And, you know, like you mentioned where people are, you know, it goes all the way up to like the destruction of a, a statue and all the way down to the looting of, you know, cell phone cards, both of which are like very reasonable and very like coherent expressions of a definite political program, even if nobody is like sitting there and writing a manifesto or something like that. Maybe it's, maybe we could call it like a political program and negative or something, but it's like, we know the enemy kind of working towards what our positive response to that enemy is going to be. But in the meantime, we know what the enemy doesn't like. And so we can start there and, you know, work our way forward. I, yeah, I, I just, you know, I always have to uh, be a stickler and like bring in Manfredo Tafuri, um <laughs> just because I think his, you know, sort of network, his concepts make, make so much sense here, just as universal as almost where like, you know, instead of thinking of the city as a body, uh, which, you know, these critics are liable to do nine times out of 10, and the sort of language of violence plays into that, um, it makes much more sense to call it, like, you know, situate cities in what he calls the universe of precision or call cities themselves a sort of uh, social machine and recognize that that machine, you know, lies within and without the cycle of production, um, distribution, and then circulation, consumption, like you mentioned, and, you know, intervening at any particular point within that system and within its sort of spatial, you know, detritus, spatial edifice that we all live in is, you know, probably one of the most 
interesting and most thought-provoking acts that anyone can particularly do. And I, I think, you know, we see this full well when, you know, protests start losing coverage and so on, and then, like, a restaurant burns down, and all of a sudden everybody's back on it and sharing video and stuff like that. And, you know, there's some things that the media cannot avoid, <laughs> and that seems to be one of them. And that, I think, makes it a good thing. Also, one thing I feel like, one way I think of kind of like material damage to property that happens in riots, like maybe this is a really kind of vacuous point, but I like if as materialists, we're, we're trying to like always understand like the substrate for a certain rhetoric or a culture, then why don't we look at material damage as like the substrate for radical demands that are being propagated? Like that is kind of like, if we're going to think, among this, yeah, just like how space is reproduced or how it's disrupted from being reproduced. Like this is, I feel like, just like a very present material um, substrate for any kind of demand or any kind of radical demand that may seem completely implausible. I feel like if you were to ask anyone, like if you were to knock down a building, would that be considered an act of violence? And uh, I, I, think you'd be very hard pressed to find a single person that would be like oh yeah even even these people that i mean maybe in some sense where it's like a beautiful cultural artifact or something like that maybe you could like broadly construe it as violence whatever that's kind of irrelevant i think the the point here is that i'm trying to, that i'm trying to get at is that the concept of violence which seems to depart almost immediately from, you know, say, kneeling on somebody's neck for almost nine minutes, and all of a sudden, like, get invested in sort of the urban body, the social body, the urban fabric, whatever the, whatever you want to call it, is stretching the, the concept of violence, like, as an abstraction to almost like its absolute limit. And so it makes it utterly meaningless. You know, just in, in terms of when we talk about it, like, to not give in to those very easy sorts of like rhetorical you know flourishes just because it sounds like powerful and it sounds like like it you know not to be too lame here but it packs a punch um like you know just steering away from that type of shit and like thinking of like how do we actually describe these things like this is what like i think if any one of us were given the opportunity to go back and like rewrite inga saffron's article like, how would, we, how would we be able to do that, not just in terms of, like, taking it to a different conclusion, but, like, eschewing the language that she uses in which the, her final point is already baked in. Like, once you start using that language, there's no real... I mean, I'm, I'm of the mind that there's really no other place you could end up other than, yeah, you know, everybody calm down, let's protect the status quo. 